From those in the know to those who need to know, this is the Indie Weekly Podcast. Hey, this is Daryl Hers from Indie Week, and this is the Indie Week Podcast number two. This is taken from our sessions that we host every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's free online sessions called Indie Weekly. And this is a recording from one of the sessions. This first one is with somebody that I find uh, very remarkable in what they've achieved. This is a recording with Steve Stewart talking about his times in management. That includes with Stone Temple Pilots, who've sold, I think it was over 40 million. Uh, really impressive. And he talks some of the strategies that he did work with Stone Temple Pilots to get to their success, as well as others. I really respect Steve and I'm very thankful to have him as part of this discussion. So tune in and remember, Indie Weekly is free live sessions online every Tuesday. Go to indieweek.com for more information. <laughs> Sure. Daryl, it's an honor to be here. I love Indie Week. Uh, I think I was there back in right before the pandemic um, in person. And, and last year, obviously, it wasn't happening in person, but uh, looking forward to getting back to Toronto. So thank you guys. Um, man, my background's in music. I played music since I was third grade. I played trumpet, played piano, played drums for a while. And then I got into the management side of things um, after college and started managing a band that was called Mighty Joe Young at that time and knocked on maybe a hundred different doors for record labels, trying to get them a record deal and got them signed in 1992 to a label called Atlantic Records in the US. And we changed the name of that band at the very last minute, uh, had to delay the record because there was a blues player called Mighty Joe Young up in Wisconsin and um, changed it to Stone Temple Pilots. So that record came out, the first record came out in 1992. Um, I made five more records with them um, we probably sold, I don't know, they say 40 million units to date, so I'm not sure, but close to that, um, a lot of records, had another 23 artists signed to major labels and publishers in the U.S., um, so I'm kind of familiar with the pain points, I understand, um, I've been a roadie, I've been, I've played, I've been, I've seen a lot of sides of the business, so um, I understand where artists are coming from, and I think a lot of the issues and inefficiencies in the industry that uh, hinder what should be. And uh, I think we'll start talking about that today because of the technology factor. And I think we're getting there. Things are happening quickly. Um, there's a lot of opportunity on the horizon. It's much different than it was 10, 20, 50, 25, 30 years ago. Um, but I'm super optimistic, but happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. It's such a great story. And like, for me, I remember those, like when Stone Temple Pilots came out. So I'm, I was a huge fan. Um, and it, it was always interesting to see how that story kept developing, you know, and uh, some of the strategies I know we've talked about in some of our other talks, but um, also, if you can, can you talk a little bit about Vest? Sure. I started a company called Vest uh, with a co-founder named Robert Menendez about three years ago. Um, we saw a, a, one of the inefficiencies in the music business was artists being compensated properly and the ability to have a direct consumer relationship with their fans so we started a company called vest and it basically took the music publishing model and democratized it right so just instead of big businesses and big media companies having access to royalties and to licensing rights we took the model that music publishers have and instead of a big company or media conglomerate making an advance to the writers 
we thought, what if we involved the missing piece of it all, which was fans, right? We thought the most passionate, the people that really want to support the artists and the songs have had no way to play in this game. We came up with a platform that allowed artists or rights holders, it could be labels or publishers, to take their entire catalog or, the, or one song and reduce it down to about 1%. So you could put in as little as 1% of your master rights, songwriting rights, or publishing rights. Instead of having to deal with a $200 million catalog or a million dollar catalog, it now brought that down so that it was consumable. And on the, on the user side, on the consumer side, allowed people to come in for as little as $5 to participate. So it wasn't a high net worth auction. It wasn't like the highest bidder. It allowed people that wanted to participate that were fans, true fans of the music and the artists to come in and participate for a fractional piece of those royalties over time. So it was a crazy concept. Um, it's, it's still very new. Yeah, we launched, like I said, late 2018. We've done about 30,000 transactions, about 350 ISOs, we call them initial song offerings. And we're, we're growing. Our biggest client so far is BMG. They put about $11 million of the content on the platform. Um, we have very big songs, um, but most of them, most of the listings are through writers, publishers, producers, people that have rights in the songs that aren't necessarily the A-list artists themselves. So we have a Beyonce song called I've Been On, for example, and one of the writers, Jonathan Myvette, has put his rights on the platform. So it's a way for people that may not have that reach or have that uh, audience that Beyonce does, but still have those rights and participated in creating those songs to monetize directly from a fan base. This is where I want to lead that conversation because the, the topic is, is artists are afraid of tech and obviously tech stuff happening today, unfortunately. But it, it's a kind of thing that here's this new concept, new idea. And often I find like I talk to artists all the time and they're skeptical almost from the start. How do you turn that around from skepticism to like enthusiasm uh, to jump on board with this new technology? I mean, the bottom line is always cash. But at the same time, I think that's very true. And, and I deal with a lot of rock and pop artists um, and, and our platform came up on hip hop. So the hip hop community to me is very inclusive. They're very collaborative. Uh, they're always featuring up and coming artists. They're, they're, they're always including the new guys on the block and the new women on the block. Whereas I think the rock and pop guys are a little more precious with their stuff. And, and they've got additional layers of management and representation that can get in the way. Um, but I think once they start to see, wow, instead of getting, you know, $250,000 from Sony for my entire catalog for five years, I can raise $50,000 for 5% of one song in 30 days. That starts to turn around that paradigm and they start thinking about things differently where the old system maybe wasn't as efficient. And by the way, most artists I know aren't really happy with their publishers. I mean, the publishers do an okay job of collecting, but very few of them are out there exploiting the work in the way that they expect them to. If you have a hit record, they're going to be out there hawking that every day. But if your song maybe is a year, two, five years, 10 years old, very few of those songs get the attention that they deserve. And I think you know, that's just a, a function of resources and how companies are built. But when they're still charging you that 50% VIG, to publish your song and exploit the, the copyright, you know, I, I don't know that there that that value is coming through. So, I think when an artist takes that in house and they say, "I'm going to try to do this myself," or have my team or managers do this, um, there's much more efficiency. The idea of developing a direct relationship with your fans 
I think is really important. I think that's probably the future of music as a whole, even if you're a major artist. And I was talking to Daryl earlier, um, most major artists don't know the end user. They don't know that fan, right? Even the labels don't know that fan. For example, you know, Warner Brothers Records, they use a distribution network of retailers. So whether it's Spotify and Apple Music today, it used to be Tower Records, HMV, et cetera. Those stores and those distributors know because they have your credit card and they're, they're billing you every month or whenever you buy something. They know exactly who you are and where you are. The label just gets a check. They don't know the end user. The artist certainly doesn't know the end user. I was talking to Post and Loans manager, Dre London. Um, this was in, in New York with his business managers as well. They were talking about a gig at Madison Square Garden. He doesn't know anybody in the audience, right? There's 15,000 plus people there. The people that know, Madison Square Garden knows, Ticketmaster who sold the tickets knows, and that's about it. The label doesn't know, Universal Records doesn't know. Post Malone just, again, gets a check. He can see faces out there in the lights, but he doesn't even know who's in those seats. He's bringing them in, but has no relationship with them. So I think where this goes is having a relationship with your audience, engaging them to participate and support you in many ways, whether that's buying merch or ticket, participating in your earnings, there's a number of ways that can happen. I think technology is kind of leading towards that right now. That is such an important point. Like, A, I worked at HMV. I remember those days. <laughs> but I literally had people that would come in and go, what should I buy today? And they literally would just buy whatever that was recommended because we built that relationship where they trusted my judgment. Like, I got to know what kind of music they like, and I would suggest it. They would buy it. And, and... It's so true that, you know, right now is the time to build relationships with your fans because they, they like we call it super fan where they'll buy all the shirts, you'll buy all the singles, you know, it's, it's really, um, that's where the money income can be is a long-term fan that buys multiple times, not the one-off time. That's a hundred percent true. And I was, I'll bring up an example with K-pop. Um, I was at a GOT7 K-pop show at the Forum here, again, pre-pandemic, um, and we were doing a lot of business with K-pop artists. Their engagement level is off the charts. After that show, it was a packed house, probably 15,000 people at the Forum. They turned the lights on. I think there were seven members of GOT7, makes sense. They all came out on stage. They all had microphones. Each one of them thanked the audience in their own personal words. No production, no music, no fancy anything like hey my name is so-and-so i really want to thank every each one of you for coming out and supporting us today this really i mean from the heart each one of them and a lot of them didn't speak english very well i mean they were doing their best in in broken english to communicate their their thankfulness and their gratefulness that they've got a fan base that can come and support them and no one left right at, at, a, at a typical rock show in the u.s <laughs> the, the performer wants to get out in their limo and go to the hotel they're gone the, the audience is gone the minute the lights come back up and it's over. This was a, a, the real communication portion of this event where I saw this, this true support coming back from the audience and from the artist as well. And that is something we don't see here. And I think we're going to see more and more of that because, as you may know, the K-pop artists are very well supported, right? These fans, they're, they're called idols or the, 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 they give their idols cars, birthday presents. They write them letters personally. They want to. They want them to know how much they appreciate them. It's not just I'm buying or downloading something. It's 
I want them to know that I appreciate what they're doing for me. And you see it reciprocated back from the stage. And I think that type of interaction is critical. And I think a lot of older artists, um, you know, back in the 70s and 80s would come to the edge of the stage and tell a story or thank people on a, on a personal level. I think now it's gotten kind of away from that because the production's gotten so big and, and the business has gotten so much bigger. But coming back to those roots where you can actually have a relationship with your fans is, is critical. Screen by Screen Music and Tech online conference happening February 2022. Passes and tickets are on sale at super early bird pricing. So check it out. Save now at screenbyscreen.com. Yeah. And you know what? This digital age, actually, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like, you know, we talk about this as an example, like we've got people from all over the world tuning in and such, but yet here we are talking and connecting. Uh, digital before was kind of felt like it's about building walls, but now those walls are coming down. Um, you know, I've, I've been involved in building websites and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there, there was a crash, I think it was around 2002, where there was a lot of money. We used to charge whatever we wanted to build websites, but often it was building sites that had this sort of like we called it the walled garden, where you can't see anything until you buy something. Right. And, and, we, and we learned, you know, the return on interest when you're charging so much was very small. So the whole internet business crashed. And then it turned into a freemium kind of model, like everything's free. And now it's kind of still, it's, it's free to a point, but you have to kind of uh, prove the value, prove the worth, get engagement enough for people to be confident. Yes, I'll spend some money. Um, do you want to sort of maybe touch point on that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, when I was, we're talking about the topic earlier, I, I had a couple of points. One was, you know, technology helps you meet people and build your audience, right? That's probably the most important thing you can do as an artist. And if you've got these resources and tools to help you do that, that's amazing. Number two, it helps you make more money, right? Because these platforms are focused on helping you sell through, tour somewhere, engage again, and have avenues of revenue that you may not have had before. And three, I think what we're talking about right here is it's free or almost free. And think of the value you're getting, even CD Baby, I know, I know you're associated very closely with them. The ability to put your song up on a platform and have it distributed everywhere at the same time globally and have those monies collected and, and paid back to you through a single source that charges like, like less than maybe a couple of cups of coffee, right? That's never been done before. You used to have to hire a publishing admin, probably an attorney to make that deal have a manager, a business manager, an accountant, you had to have a team of people that you pay a thousand times, maybe 10,000 times what it costs to register a song on CD Baby or DistroKid or TuneCore, any of the platforms that help you push your content out there. So yeah, I mean, the democratization is happening, right? Production is pretty much free. I mean, on my phone is GarageBand. It comes with my phone. It doesn't cost me anything. Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton, all the DAWs, all the platforms that you can make your music on are very low cost compared to walking into a studio at a thousand dollars an hour and spending two months in there right so most people can make production quality broadcast quality a level quality content from their homes and that's number one that's game changing right so you're an artist that can't travel you don't have a budget you don't have relationships you can still build and write songs and create content of quality right where you are 
distribution free, right? Spotify, Apple Music, CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid. These platforms are, YouTube is absolutely free. Um, they're either free or very close to it. And that again has allowed people to get their work out everywhere. I mean, you, you hear songs in second and third world countries where there is no radio, there is no other infrastructure, but everyone has a cell phone and they can tune into one of these digital distribution platforms or, or YouTube and hear the music everywhere. So the production distribution angles are pretty much solved and available to pretty much anyone anywhere. The big problem to me is monetization and curation, right? How do you find the music that's of quality that you're interested in? And once you find it, how does the artist get compensated amidst all the other static and noises out there? Because it's not just, you know, a hundred records coming out every week from the majors like it used to be. It's 64,000 songs being uploaded to Spotify every day, I think. There's some ridiculous number where, and, and not to mention YouTube or SoundCloud, you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of songs being created and uploaded every day. So you're competing for viewers' ears and time, or listeners' time, with all those other songs that are coming out. So how do you differentiate? How do you create that engagement, which we're talking about earlier, which is key to, again, building your audience and monetizing your work? So um, I think the technology, it's, it's a double-edged sword. People had a lot of aspirations for it initially. They said that the internet's going to solve everything. Didn't happen. But now you're starting to see real money coming through real value coming back in, in regards to, you know, recording and, and production tools and distribution tools. Uh, and now the question is, how do we use that in a way and how can consumers use it in a way to find what they really like? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like we've gone through this whole digital age of like digital, 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 but now we're humanizing it more so and, and having these types of conversations. And I think, you know, if anything, it's broken down the barriers of international you don't have to tour, but you can still connect. And I, I, I think a lot of the hesitation, it, it kind of reminds me of when I was in a band. And I remember going to like this networking event at the Horseshoe with my band. And okay, great. Now we're here to network. There's A&R reps everywhere checking out the bands and all this stuff. And, you know, the, the whole hustle was you bring CDs, handout or postcards and flyers and stuff. And literally... The rest of my band went to the order, went to the bar, ordered a beer, and went to the corner. And at the end of the night, I was like, "So, who do you talk to?" And they're like, "What do you mean?" Well, the A and R reps. Well, I didn't know any of them, so we just talked to each other in the corner. Like they literally didn't talk to anybody. I'm like, you know, the guy who signed Nickelback was here, and over there was the guy who, you know, books all the major artists of Canada and stuff. And they're like, oh, we didn't know and Part of it is by not speaking or participating in conversations, you'll kind of continually never know and, and continually not make those relationships because it, it is such a relationship business that you have to participate. And, and I, I hope digital can help break down those walls because I know artists often are like, I'm not afraid isn't the right word, but maybe are uncomfortable in talking about their music, talking about their art, and being that self-promoter. Um, You're 100% right. I mean, most artists don't want to be self-promoting and selling their stuff. So that's why they had someone out there, a label, manager, PR person. And maybe that's what it takes. With Maybe they partner with a social influencer who has no problem 
pushing out to everybody. But you're right. And, and it strikes me that most artists are very technically minded, right? They'll buy the latest gear. You'll see the, like, what keyboard is that? What limiter is that? What they'll, they'll have all the latest gear, but they won't engage with social, right? They won't go that next step and put themselves out there. And I, I get a lot of that. I mean, lyrics, I know when people keep asking about, what does a song mean? You kind of don't want to say, you know, because it could mean something different to anybody else, right? And you want that ambiguity. You want someone to think, hey, that song is about my girl, right? Even though it's maybe not even about a girl. I remember I was talking to someone about a band called the Hoodoo Gurus back in the day, and they had a song called I Want You Back. And it sounds like a guy writing it about a girl he wants to come back. But it's not. I, I, I just read an interview where they, it was like a guy they kicked out of their band and they didn't like him so much. They, they turned it into a relationship song that became a hit. But no one knows that. It was written about something else. So if you hear the lyric, like you mentioned earlier, it's per, you're personalizing it. And you don't want to get in the way of that. Right. It's almost what movies do to books. Right. When you see a, a, you read a great book, you're like, OK, in my head. I could see every scene. I could see visualize the entire thing. And then the movie comes out and you're like, wow, that's nothing like what I thought it was. And it, it kind of maybe ruins that, that, that imagery that you'd created for yourself. Um, and I think a lot of artists want you to keep that creative essence going without spoiling it about, oh, this is about my next door neighbor, like next door neighbor. I thought it was about like, you know, some girl you met on a trip to Europe or whatever. It, 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 the mundane can become amazing in your head if you let someone develop that imagery so a lot of artists don't want to explain lyrics and, and maybe you know what i get out of it is they're putting things out and the audience or the fans are going to have their own interpretation of that they don't want to get in the way of that so i see i see that angle and it is self-promotion it is selling yourself and not everybody wants to do that and it's sad in, in one way that that's kind of required now when you engage in social media and you're on a instagram channel or a tiktok channel or a youtube channel i mean you're almost required to, to comment and respond and participate in something that may not be your core competency you want to write guitar licks and and sing vocals or write melodies that's got nothing to do sometimes with instagram or, or youtube but it can't right the other thing is it could i mean tiktok and a lot of these visual and audio medium platforms, SoundCloud, are made for artists to put up song pieces or lyrics or vocals or just, I'm thinking about this today. What do you guys think about that? And I think you see some artists asking their audience for input, which, again, that's a way to communicate. That's a way to relate to your audience. And they say, look, I wrote this song. I can't figure out which chorus I like better or I don't know where to go with this bridge or how should I end this? And the input that you can now receive from tens of thousands of people literally might be really valuable. It might be a way to start a conversation about something that's relevant, right? Not a, an alcohol product or a dirt bike or something else. If this is my music. I'm asking you guys what you think about this lyric or about this chord change. And I think there's a way to have that engagement without getting out of your comfort zone so much. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, I think the, that's been one thing with artists since the start, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's part of the personality. Like, I mean, being creative, you are putting yourself out there to be scrutinized and criticized. And um, that sort of wall is that sort of safety barrier as an artist, uh, you know, trying to preserve them, their, themselves as a person and an artist to keep continue creating. Cause it just means every time they create, they're going to get criticized even more, but with online uh, you're right. TikTok. And the social platforms, if you're engaging there, you have to engage. 
and um, putting out content could be clips of songs, backups, like behind the scenes, acoustic versions. There's so much that could continue to push the art side of things. Um, there's an artist that I used to work with in the UK. And one thing kind of combining it all is looking at the data of where people are engaging, say all of a sudden people in Germany, we can see an audience growing, would then say, hey, I'm thinking next tour, I should go to Germany. Who, who would agree? So then the people in Germany start clicking and yes, come here, blah, blah, blah. And then follow up with a question. Well, it's either going to be this city or this city, which one? And then based on the re reaction, that's the city he's going to book. Uh, so so there's ways to think data equals questions, which equals engagement. And, and that's building, uh, that in itself is building a relationship with the people who said, yes, come to my city. Um, that, so that's just one use that I've seen online that's been actually really successful. You no, it's a good, it, it, the next question is whose couch am I going to sleep on tonight? Right, because now you've got a place to stay, people to come see you, and a way to monetize your work. Because you're right, and, and it's there used to be that facade, right? The only way you could get through it was maybe yelling at an artist off stage at a live event somewhere. Because the label, you, you had liner notes, and you had an album, and maybe you saw them on a clip on Midnight Special or something. There was no video, there was no YouTube, nothing was like that. So that they were very mysterious, and they were kind of away at a, at a definite arm's length. And now that arm has gotten shorter and shorter where you can contact them through these social channels. And I think the value to social, and I'm sure everybody would agree, is, is the personal connection, right? You don't need to see polished, well-rehearsed, well-edited content. I mean, look at us. We're just sitting in our homes or whatever. There's no fancy production on this. No one cares. We want the content. We want to know what that person's thinking, what they're feeling, not something that's been produced and edited and polished up. So I think a lot of artists feel like, oh, well, this, you know, they're only going to have a mastered, mixed version to listen to. That, that's fine. And, and everybody knows that there's a limit to how much you can master and mix. It. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. There's some artists that will keep mixing a song forever. Um, but at some point, it's good enough to release. And I think that line has to come back with regard to these relationships. People would rather see your mistakes. They'd rather know your thoughts. They'd rather know the kind of anxiety you have when you go in the studio or, or you're, you're, you're not sure about something. That is what's human. That's what connects us. And I think seeing that on a, 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 even on a technical platform like Zoom or like YouTube brings people together. And that's how you get true followers. When someone goes, wow, I like that person because he's not perfect, right? She made a lot of mistakes or she didn't know where to go with this course. And she asked everybody and we all came back with ideas. It's, it's almost opening up a two-way communication path with with someone that you respect and 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 love listening to there's nothing more powerful than that yeah, absolutely and and you know kind of making me think of a few things uh one one thing like i've started trying to do and and i think when you're making that connection you actually have to invest like be in it like participate is i'll i'll start like at times i'll check in with people and just real quick, because I find it faster, I just go to Instagram, hit messages, and I hit my microphone, and I just say, hey, I'm just checking in, see how you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's about actually taking that time to be kind of like maybe the first to message, not waiting for the other to message. 
like start the conversation, be a part of the conversation. I think that also is another sort of seems to be a barrier for people is just, you know, you gotta, you have to take charge and, and be a part of it. Um, you know, and I found that that works actually really effectively, especially it's your voice too. So it's even personalizing it even more so by using the microphone more. So I do that a lot more than typing these days. Plus I make a ton of typos when I type. But musicians, you know, it, it's, they're different than actors, right? This, and this is, this is the big difference for me. When you're acting, someone else has given you a script, told you what to wear, told you where to stand, lit you up, and then films you. That's like, that could be the furthest thing away from who you really are, right? With a musician, you generally wrote the song or wrote the music or wrote the words. You're performing those words. That's you. That's not someone else feeding you something or propping you up in a certain way. That's really, you're very vulnerable, right? And I think a lot of musicians, that's probably bearing their soul in a way that actors never have to do, right? Actors, God's oh, that's Scorsese's script. I didn't, you know, he, he directed her. I had nothing to do with that. Or that was him asking me to act like a killer. Okay, I'm not a killer. I'm this person. But what with a musician, you tend to, what you see is what you get. I mean, that's, that's David Bowie. That's Bob Dylan. That's Adele, whoever. That's them. And their songs are very personal. And that's a very vulnerable thing to put those out, like you said, and back them up and then have to have a conversation about them afterwards. So I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I see too is like, take a band like Soundgarden. They are so secretive. Like you, <laughs> you don't know what they're doing and then they pop up somewhere and then that's it. And like, and, and I think a lot of times people will identify with artists that they look up to. And the one thing to think about is they've already built the audience. They already have the fans that are there like waiting for anything. You can't start with that. Like people start, sometimes I see artists go, okay, I'm going to be mysterious, but they haven't built a following yet. And then they're just mysterious and it doesn't really engage because they haven't built that following yet. Um, it's a I've, different world today too. Soundgarden came out when you were buying hard product, physical CDs and stuff. And they still were behind that, that mysterious thing a little bit. You couldn't really get to them. But today I, th I think you have to put everything everywhere. And, and if you're not comfortable with that, then you're going to have a different type of career path. I mean, you have to be able to share. I think the reason artists perform in the first place is to share with other people, right? And otherwise, you just sit in your home and record to yourself. But if you want to get up on stage, that means you want an audience or you're comfortable with an audience. This is just that times, you know, 10 million, even though it doesn't maybe seem like it all the time. So I think there has to be an openness. Um, you know, you're right. You could be more exclusive after you have that big following maybe, but if you want to get to the point where you can make a living off your music today, um, you have to be open to pretty much all platforms and, and try everything out. I mean, you may not have success on anything but one or two platforms, but you got to be on TikTok. You got to be on Instagram. You got to be on SoundCloud. You got to be on YouTube. You got to be on Spotify. I mean, if, if you're not, you might miss, right? Maybe your whole audience is going to find you on Apple Music. But you're not on Apple Music, so no one found you, right? And, and no one knows what that's going to be. So it's like placing bets, right? If you had a, a stack of chips in Vegas, you put one on every number because one of those numbers is going to hit, right? But if you say, look, I don't want my stuff on Tidal or I don't want it on Spotify, okay, you're, you're cutting off the potential 
to have a huge fan base that might be waiting for something like you there, right? So again, with the cost being super minimal, it doesn't, you're, you're clicking on a bunch CD baby. If I want it on Spotify and Apple Music, I just click a box, literally. I don't have to sign anything. I don't have to go pay anybody. It's just click, click, click. Where do you want your music to go? Bam, and then it's out there. So with that amount of ease and the lower costs involved, why would you say no? And again, if it's something that you want to keep private, don't put it out anywhere and don't perform on a stage. But if you want to go out and perform and, and reach people and move people, which I think a lot of artists seek to do, um, the more platforms, the more people. Oh, you made me think of something. Uh, so th this is like the kind of thing where, you know, like don't put it out there if this is not what you're wanting kind of deal. But it's also, and I can't remember who said it, but it's like once it's out there, it's not mine anymore. It's the audiences. And it's the kind of thing like I, I remember seeing Iron Maiden one year and they're like, we're playing none of our hits. None. We're just playing <laughs> a new album. And that concert, people left angry. Like I was hearing people like, I'll never buy a ticket again. Screw them. I don't know any of these songs. Like you have to kind of like the audience actually starts kind of telling you, like giving you the feedback on what they want. And part of it is you got to kind of give them a little bit of what they want. Otherwise that relationship doesn't keep progressing. If, if that makes sense. You're only there because of your fans, right? I'll, I'll tell you a quick STP story. They were doing re reading, reading festival in, in England many years ago. And the hit at that point was plush off their first record. It was the biggest song on the first record. And it was played, you know, a lot, let's say, which, you know, that, that's, that's, that was my goal is to get that music played as much as I could. And that was the label's goal, by the way. Um, but when the band was putting their set list together for Reading, they go, I don't think we want to play plush. And I said, so wait a second, you don't want to play your hit for the 10,000 people that are going to see you at this festival that are paying money to come see you. And by the way, you only get to play, I think, one or two songs. And by the way, this is England. So it's not like the U.S. where everybody has 8 million of your records. They only know one song from you because this is the single that's been released here. Ah, but, you know, we're, we're tired of playing that song. I said, are you too tired to get on an airplane to fly over there and play in front of 10,000 people and, and come home with a check? No, but you know, that song's just tired. We play it way too many times. It's overplayed. I said, those people have never seen you before. It's the first time you've played Reading. They've never seen you play this song before. Why would you take that away from someone who's spending, you know, hundreds of dollars to come and see you play maybe their favorite song? I mean, you could play whatever song you want. I'm, I'm just your manager. I'm just here to counsel and give you options. But from a fan's perspective, I would be disappointed if you didn't play the song that was playing on the radio that I love, that I want you to, I, I came here to see the artists that I like play the song that I love. You know, Paul McCartney is the best example. You go to see Paul McCartney, you think he's going to play yesterday? Damn straight he's playing yesterday. He plays that song, he probably played it a million times, right, Paul McCartney. And I saw him play it once and it was just, yesterday, but he ran through that song and I thought, that song means so much to me and he just, it was like an afterthought. I wish he would have, done it with what I thought was more feeling. Again, he can play whatever he wants, but if your song has touched somebody and you've touched somebody through that song, 
at least please give them that little modicum of joy and the reason maybe that they came to see you. And yes, play new stuff as well if you've got the opportunity, but give the people what they want. They put you there. They paid for that flight. They paid for that house, right? I know. Oh, so true. So true. And, and have had many conversations similar to that. And I probably lost. Uh, and, <laughs> but, but it's so true. Like, you know, it, it's a kind of thing that the, the audience dictates. And, you know, you mentioned Bob Dylan earlier. Bob Dylan was an acoustic artist and then he switched over to electric. People were burning his albums and like canceled Bob Dylan back in the 60s, you know, and and you know, he was able to get through it, but a lot of artists can't make those kind of changes and survive. But, you know, there is a degree you have to sort of meet the demand of what the demand is. And also, um, you know, we've talked about like sort of the times have changed. I grew up with hair metal. Second Nirvana came out. Hair metal gone, like gone. And, and, and it just wasn't cool anymore. So if you were like in one of those bands, still kind of like beating the door of like, we're going to, you know, do the good fight for hair metal. And it's like 1994, probably aren't going to uh, find too much success during that time. So you have to also think of what the time is saying, as well as what the fans are saying. I think that's sometimes also part of the disconnect. And, and take a step back, right? And, and if you really are rock and roll, that is a reverence. That is doing what you want, taking a stand for what you believe in. Don't just follow someone because, oh, I think that's what everybody else is doing. This is what I want to do, right? And I, I, I remember another story about a, you know, a, a TV commercial, a very, a very highly, a very big offer from a major car manufacturer in the U.S. to use a Stone Temple Pilots song, and. The band was like, you yeah, know, that's that's just kind of selling out. We, we can't be at a car commercial. That's that's crazy. So it went away. Two months later, Led Zeppelin put, I think it was a whole lot of love on a uh, Ford commercial or Chevy commercial. And then I get a call. Hey, Steve, um, is, that, is that car commercial still around? I said, well, that's selling out, isn't it? You guys hate car commercial. You would never you would never do a car commercial. Well, Zeppelin did one. I go, I know. And they cleaned, they made a lot of money from that car commercial. That offer is gone, right? I mean, are you doing it just because Led Zeppelin did it? Or are you doing it because you want to do it? That's, and, and I, I think that there's a lot of that. And again, artists are looking around. They're trying to become part of the, of the fabric. But I always point out, you know, the ticket that you're, you're playing at you know, Staples Center in LA. Staples Center is a brand. It's printed on the ticket bigger than your name is. You don't want to sell out. Go play in a, in a field somewhere with nobody's name on it. You'll pay a lot of money to build security and build staging and bring in production. Staples Center is made as a performing venue for people that want to see sports events or, or concert events. Yeah. Is there a sponsor behind it? Of course. Is there big, ugly corporate money that went into building that building? Yes, there is. Same thing with the, the phone that you're listening to or the radio station or TV station you're watching. It's a lot of corporate money supporting those those mediums and those those technologies that play your music by the way and get you paid so again you know you can play guitar in the field if you like but if you want to be a commercially accepted artist and have a career and, and make earnings from your work these are some of the compromises you have to make and they are compromises i used to tell every artist before signing a record contract 
you're compromising your art. You are selling out to some extent right here. This record company's business is selling as many records as possible of your, of your music. If you don't want that to happen, don't sign this, right? Don't play the game. It is a game. It is a compromise. But if you have the most integrity that you just want to play in person acoustically to your friends and family, please do that. That's, that's completely valid. But if you want to be in this industry and you want to make a career and make substantial sums of money sometimes from an audience through these media companies and distribution companies, you're going to have to compromise in some fashion. And that's what that is. Indie Week All Access Pass just announced. One pass gets you into all four online conferences Indie Week is producing in 2022. Screen by Screen Music and Tech Conference in February. Indie 101 Education on the Music Industry and Business in May. Music Pro Summit High Level Industry Discussions in September. And Indie Week in November. All this for one low price right now at Super Early Bird Pricing, which will take place only for a limited time. For more information, go to IndieWeek.com. You know, I've used the metaphor, like we're here in Canada, we like hockey. And I I really say uh, music is really like hockey or professional sports. You know, it's the kind of thing that when you start, you're playing, you know, why do you start? I want to play hockey. And, right. and then um, when you start getting into something that's more serious, you get drafted and sent to a city that you didn't ask to go to when you're like 16 or 15. And I know this because my nephew went through this. And then while you're playing for that team, you get traded to a totally different team in another country. That also happened. And it's a kind of thing where it's like, oh, you're gr- green is your uniforms. I don't like green. I don't <laughs> wear green. And, and then you don't get to play, you know, or, or like, oh, you're the traded to this. You're the new guy. You're on the fourth line and you maybe play two minutes a period. And it's like, oh, I won't take for that. Well, then then you're out of the league. Right. And that's the minor league trying to get to the major league. Right. And, and so there is compromises all the way. And like I, I use sports because often sports athletes are like really put on pedestals, just like artists and and you know, like Michael Jordan, like what is he known for? Shoes. Yes, he played basketball, was great, but shoes. <laughs> he sold millions of shoes and that's where he made a lot of his money. So, you know, and, and it's an interesting thing because uh, there's a Netflix documentary series with Michael Jordan and, you know, talking about shoes and stuff like endorsement deals. Should I do this? Should I not do this? And it's the kind of thing that, you get that chance almost once in a lifetime and then it's gone. And, and so I think another part is hesitation. And I think, you know, there's that confidence. Should I do this? Should I not? And it's like, Oh, sorry, that's already gone. Like it's that fast sometimes. Uh, so, so it's interesting. You made me think of, of that kind of metaphor uh, that I use a lot. It's just like, it's like hockey. It's like sports you get traded, you have to wear a different uniform, play with people that you might have been playing against and hated, but now you're on the same line. Uh, you know, things it's, like that happen all the time. It's so tough to have that conversation with an artist because they don't want to think themselves as a commodity, and nor, nor should they. But it is interesting. There's a line out the door and you probably will be, you know, a, a famous artist for this amount of time. 
And then somebody else will come in and take that number one spot. And somebody else will come in. I mean, that's the reason there's charts. I mean, you, you don't stay at number one forever. Maybe you're up there for six weeks or 10 weeks if you're lucky, but then your record starts to come down and other records will come in. There's going to be people that come after you. There's people at the, at the labels that are competing with you. There's a lot of competition at the highest levels of the game, just like in sports. If you want to stay relevant, you have to keep adapting. You have to keep creating. You have to keep trying new things. And they all aren't going to work. I mean, look at Madonna. She's probably the best example, right? There's someone who, who has evolved from, I don't know how many different personalities, but she always seems to come up with something new and different. She always says something controversial. She always does her shows in different ways. She's adding elements that are creatively different and unique every time to keep her fan base you know, interested. And you'll build a longer career and have many, many more fans if you can evolve. Sting, another great example, right? Here's a guy that was in a three-piece rock band called The Police, pop ska band, whatever you want to call him, and evolved into one of the biggest, like, let's just say adult contemporary artists there is. Still has integrity? Yeah, has he done car commercials? Millions of them. Has he, has he done product endorsements? All day long. But I'm not looking at him for those sneakers. I'm looking at him because he's the best basketball player or he's an amazing singer. He wrote amazing songs. I think people can now separate those facets of your career and expect you to be doing endorsements and, and making a living. Why wouldn't you? I mean, again, back to the hip hop guys, they're on, entrepreneurs, right? Jay-Z's got far more business interests than just one record contract. So there's nothing wrong with being a creative being in many, many respects. I think your fans tend to appreciate that sometimes. Again, if you share with them, hey guys, I'm thinking about starting a new t-shirt line. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you guys think about that, right? Get that feedback and see what they say. I bet most of them go, you know what? I'd like to see a t-shirt by you. I'd like to see a, a new tequila by you or whatever it's going to be. That could be interesting to people that you may not realize until you talk to them. So I think times are different. I think opportunities are abounding and trying things out. It's never going to be perfect always mistakes, but trying things out and finding where those success points are is, is critical to succeeding in the long run. Yeah. And in fact, mistakes actually often are the next sort of creative inspiration that can happen. So many studio recordings are based off of mistakes. And, and so try, try, try. And I think this is the age where the more you, again, kind of getting it back to the more you share, the more engaging it is. And, and it's, it's actually, to me, I find this a super exciting time, actually. When, when there's new changes, that means new opportunities. And, and if everybody's sort of watching what the tech games are playing, like where, where things are, there's more opportunity than ever before. Uh, you know, Roblox is huge with online concerts. The metaverse is being created and you could be a part of it and, and you could be as, as sort of create a small space within it or as big space within it, however you're comfortable with. So if anything, right now, the digital age can match however you want to build your career or, or be perceived online. Um, what, what do you think about that? There's so much more opportunity and, and you could, you know, you can present yourself in any way you want. Just like you were saying, if, if you want to wear something different today, you want to present a different image, you want to have something that's an experimental track that you recorded, it's okay. It's okay to put that out. Labels would never put that out. Back in the day, you said, hey, look, I've got this 
this weird acoustic idea I'm going to try. The label's like, okay, put that in a song. Let's hire a producer. Let's get it mixed. They wouldn't just let you put things out like that. Today, if you have a, a, a melody in your head and you want to hum it on YouTube, have at it, right? But again, I think that what's, that's what makes people more human. And, and, it, and it lets you see that guy thinks like me or she has the same ideas that I have. And, and that's what connects us. And when artists connect, they get, they get an audience. And when you get an audience, you get money. And it's, that's, if you're trying to build a career and you're trying to build an audience, I think you have to take those shots. You have to experiment. You have to let people see your thought process. Let them know how you work. You know, these, these um, acoustic tracks you're seeing released, some of the Michael Jackson stuff and some of the older artists, those things sell through the roof because people have heard the perfect recordings for many years. Like, I've heard beat it like, I don't know, a thousand times, 5,000 times. But here's a demo when it was just him and a click track, right? And I think his brother was in there, Quincy put something in and you hear it and you're like, that's amazing. I'll buy that because it gets me a front row seat into the thought process and the craftsmanship that goes into building that song. And I think people want that content. They want that richness. They want to know how someone thinks and what, what happens in their life beyond just, here's one piece of work I put out today and it's perfectly polished. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the band that I really uh, have admired over the years is U2, and they were masters of the singles and remixes and collaborations. Even in the CD age, that's how they made a ton of money. And uh, one way they did it is they would release singles in Japan that aren't available in America. And, and knowing that those singles wouldn't probably hit properly in America, but it would in Japan. So they actually release singles in different markets that would work in those markets as opposed to just trying to force it everywhere. Um, now, there is a question, Steve, Anna sent in, and I want to make sure that we get to it. Uh, will your crowdfunding site help an emerging indie artist who doesn't have a fan base yet? Sure. You have to have some fan base. And I can tell you a story. We had a guy named uh, Julian Extra. He had 3,000 Facebook fans, so a relatively small amount of fans. He put up a couple of tracks early on on the platform and got almost 100% engagement with his fan base. I think he made close to $3,000 in his first initial song offering. And for him, that was game changing. He was driving a lift. He was tending bar. He was able to stop doing those things and focus on his music. He put up some more songs. I think he ended up making close to $25,000 from the platform. He was able to move to New York, hire a manager, and actually get into his career in a serious way versus doing it part-time at night. So there is a path, but you have to have engagement with your fan base. And I think a lot of indie artists have that even more than some of the majors. I mean, I always use Kim Kardashian as an example. She's probably got, you know, 100 million followers, but very few of them are real followers that are engaged with her. But if you've got someone that's got 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 fans at an indie level, those fans probably know you. You probably know them. There's, they've probably seen you live. There's some relationship there that engenders them to you and they will probably follow you as you create more and have more things to sell and offer them. So it just depends on engagement, right? And, and if you've got a very engaged base of 10,000 fans, they each give you a dollar, there's $10,000. So it's doable. I think a lot of the newer DIY indie artists are finding they don't need a massive base of millions of fans. They need, you know, maybe 10,000 core fans that will come out to their shows, buy their merchandise, stream their songs, et cetera that let them have a career. Yeah, and you know what, going back to the engagement part is, I, I think market, one, marketing, marketing, marketing is always key. <laughs> 
But if you're thinking about engaging, have a bit of a plan in, in the sense of like, I'm, I'm not going to release now and expect something to happen now because I haven't had any lead up and, and talk to people. So think of like, if you're going to do a release, say six months from now, and if you have a thousand fans, start personally messaging each and every single one of them, maybe three a day, four a day, 10 a day. But that's that whole, like, you have to take that first step and get them engaged by talking to them and with them. Uh, because I think a lot of the sort of misconception of marketing is posting, buy my song now, buy my song now. That's just a one-way street. It's not a two-way street. And I think that's a huge disconnect in what people think marketing is. Uh, 100%. It's digital age. It's a dialogue, right? Even though you have the ability to shoot out and shotgun people like that, people want to know that you're responsive. They want to know that they have a voice and that you're hearing them. I'll give you a quick STP story. When we did the first record, we put an address on for fan club. And this is on the physical CD booklets and the, and the albums. And letters started to come in. I mean, like thousands of letters, boxes full of mail. And I had my assistant, I said, pull everything out there that has a phone number. And they're like, I said, let's just do it. And maybe one out of 10 pieces of mail had a phone number in it. And I got the guys to go. This is very early on before their record was ever gold or anything. I said, we're going to sit down on a weekend and we're going to call every single phone number that came in the mail. Someone took the time to write you and send it in the mail and, and they put a phone number in there and you're going to call them. And they're like, what? I said, think about this, right? These are mostly high school and college kids. They go to school on Monday morning and they tell their whole school, 500 kids, a thousand kids, that they got a call from Robert DeLeo, the bass player of Stone Temple Pilots. What do you think that's going to do for your record? It will sell your record out in that small town, in that community. And then multiply that by each phone number that we're going to call this weekend, right? And something, it's the same, same exact idea, but that they'd have a 10, 20 second conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to write me a piece of fan mail. We're going to come to your town really soon. Thank you so much for supporting us. That's it. It's all you got to say. And you go to school and say, this guy just called me on Saturday from this band that I love, right? That's mind blowing back then. So that type of personal interaction and communication with your fans, again, we're back to engagement is I think, which, and that spreads, right? That word of mouth, it's not just talking to that one person. You know that person's going to share that with their entire class and their entire school. And word gets out and all of a sudden you sold 10,000 records there, right? And then you sold 10,000 records in every town. And that's how you get to be a number one record on the second record that comes out. So it's little things like that that drive the human connection that I think is what this whole business is about. That's, that's amazing. I and I can't resist. It's kind of like a virus, how it spreads. You just don't know how long it's going to last and where it's going to go and how far it'll go. But but that is gold. Like that alone right there is is, is gold. Like that interaction. Uh, man, what foresight to do that at that time too. Um, you know, it, there's a book that uh, uh, I read quite a while ago. It's more on the business and hacking, like hacking called Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Oh, yeah. And, and part of one thing he said is, well, you know, if you write how-to kind of resource PDFs, you could sell it for 20 bucks, but don't write it. Just 
post it for sale. And when you get X number of clicks of people interested, then you write it and you already have their emails and then you send their emails to them. Hey, this is going to be coming up. If you want it, I'll give it to you for even $5 less right now and, and such. So, so there's ways to do kind of market research by asking questions. And what I feel is interesting is you put the address on the CD and the response kind of tells you how you should react or, or let, let's do something with this. And, and uh, you, you know, that's gold. Like, and that's kind of like, wow, I, I'm just thinking like, that's like, you know, organic data mining uh, at its best uh, right there. Um, you know, a band I use, I worked with in UK, one of the things they did, they bought onto a, a tour to open. So they knew it was going to be all sold out and they figured in the, I think it was 12 shows they were playing there would play in front of a quarter million people. And they negotiated. This is also rare sometimes with an opening act to have access to the video screens. They're like, we, we as part of it, we just want the video screens and what they did is they created some video clips that told their story as an opening band while they're tuning that would play. And then at the end, he said, if you like our music, text that number. And, and so at the end of the tour, they had 50,000 phone numbers. Wow. And they said, we'll give you free music. And so, so then from that point on, anytime they wanted a tour. So this is where they took a buy on, which is usually not the best deal but they took it where we're going to get data. And so now every time they tour, they literally text message 50,000 people tickets on sale next Thursday. And, and so, and of course other releases and, and very similar is like, you know, call them and message them personally, like checking in and stuff like that. Um, I think that's one thing that is also very available right now is there's tools to even make that type of communication even easier you could schedule messages you could do a zoom call and kind of talk to 50 people all at one time all these kinds of things are out there right now it's, you can do more than that. you could do thousands of people on a zoom there's yeah. there's corporate solutions to do ten thousand people at a shareholders meeting and i always wonder why artists don't do more of that but you're right there's a there's an app called community that gives you a number that you can use as a text number a lot of labels i saw warner brothers i think just bought them um, but there's plenty of ways to communicate. Um, but building that list is critical. As an indie artist, you want to have a list. And it, one of the ways, you know, a lot of bands get signed if you want to go that way, uh, which I don't necessarily recommend all the time. But if you go in there and say, I've got 300,000 customers on my list and they're active. What? That's not just followers or likes. That's 300,000 people that actually bought my shirt or downloaded my CD or my, 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 my song, that's powerful. And at that point, again, I don't know that you need a label, right? If you have 300,000 engaged customers and you sell them a t-shirt for $25, um, that goes a long way to paying the, the, the light bill. So, um, you know, the label would, would juice that, but they would also give you a much smaller percentage of the return. So, um, you have to weigh those factors together and it's not always the best option for everybody right now. Yeah. And it's funny that you said community. I'm actually on uh, Gary <laughs> V's community. Gary uh, V. Yeah. Gary so, v. so he's pushing that a lot all the time too. Uh, and if you don't know Gary V, definitely look him up. He's like social media guru and such. 
Um, Steve, it's always so fast how these talks go. It's already a little after three here. Uh, any last comments on your end that you want to give? I mean, don't be afraid and, and be open, right? There, there's time for vulnerability, but when it comes to dipping your toe in the tech world, don't feel like there's, like there's, there's something that you can't correct. Um, I think it's an exciting time. I think more and more platforms are popping up every day. The ability to engage with your audience, build your audience, monetize, all that is right there. And, it, and it's very little cost to you. Um, take advantage of it every which way you can. Um, you want to check out Vest, it's vezt.co. Um, it's on the Apple Store, it's on the Google Play Store. Um, I'm Steve at vezt.co if you want to reach out. Look forward to hearing from you guys. I appreciate the time, Daryl and Zach and all the guys at Indie Week. And I look forward to seeing you guys uh, real soon in Toronto in person. You've been listening to the Indie Weekly Podcast. Be sure to visit IndieWeek.com for all the information on the conferences for 2022. Screen by Screen, Music and Tech in February. Indie 101, Music and Business Education in May. Music Pro Summit, high-level music industry insight from professionals in September, and Indie Week brings it all together in November. Act now and get early bird pricing on an all-access pass to all four conferences presented by Indie Week. Details and much more at IndieWeek.com. Thanks for listening.